Hello, and welcome to another episode of the B2B Founders Podcast. I'm your host, Brett Trainer. I hope you're enjoying the new format. One of the key themes that has emerged through the early episodes is the challenge founders have of growing beyond their network. Today's guest had the same challenges. Tessa Court, who is the founder and CEO of Intelligence Bank, which is the leading digital asset management and marketing operations platform. They currently support over 400 brands, 350,000 users in over 55 countries. They also have over 50 employees now worldwide. I love Tessa's and Intelligent Bank's journey. Tessa had a problem where she was head of a global sales and marketing team and couldn't find a solution. So what did she do? She started a company to solve that problem. We spent the majority of the time discussing how she was able to scale Intelligence Bank beyond just her network and how to do it profitably. There's a lot of value and lessons from today's episode. We also discuss how your network runs out pretty quickly, how Tessa priced her offering early and how it evolved, the challenge of being a CEO of a tech company without having a technical background, why big logos, i.e. brands, can add credibility to your growth early on, plus so much more. As a reminder, if you listen to this podcast and enjoy it, please subscribe on your favorite platform and share it with your friends and colleagues that might enjoy it as well. Thank you for listening, and now, on to the interview. Hey, good morning, Tessa. Welcome back to the program. Yeah, thanks for having me. Oh, it's good to have you. Thanks for, for getting up early and appreciate you joining again. And, you know, as we talked a little bit before we hit record, really want to drill down into your, your, your first, what we call it, scaling experience, right? We have a lot of founders on here that talk about breaking through the, the million dollar mark. So I want to take you back in time a little bit through that journey and you know, help us break that down. Before we do, can you share with the audience a little bit about what you and the, the folks at Intelligence Bank are, are working on today, how big you are, who you work with, all that yeah, good stuff? Yeah, sure. So Intelligence Bank is a marketing operations platform, and we help marketing departments around the world not get fired and not get sued. Um, that's basically what we do. So um, in other words, we have a series of tools such, such as digital asset management, marketing workflow and marketing project management, and, and also online brand guidelines. And we basically help them manage online creative content management and creative governance. So just making sure clients and big brands can manage the content that gets produced and then gets approved and then gets distributed as well. So really putting a process around that. So just like a Salesforce would have salesforce.com or a CRM system, marketing departments need a system of records. That's probably the best way to think about it. And I know this has been a labor of love for you, right? And I think if I'm remembering right, you know, you, I know you've pivoted a little bit, but I mean, this was the core of what your idea was back in the early days, wasn't it? Yeah. So, you know, Intelligence Bank has a lot of different products, so we still offer those other products, but um, this is the main one that's really taken off. So, you know, I think when you're starting a business, you have lots of different ideas and sometimes the market pulls you in different ways. But I think what's really important is that you stick with what you know. So before 
intelligence bank when I was working at Hitwise, which was acquired by Experian. And that's, you know, how we met originally, you know, I think that was about a thousand years ago now. <laughs> it does. You know, I was head of global sales and marketing there. And, you know, I basically, when I started intelligence bank, I built the product I always wanted. So I think when you're starting a business, it's important to, you know, to, you know, sometimes people go into brand new industries and I think that's really a brave thing, but I think building something that you know and that you're really familiar with and you can resonate with the customers that you're selling to is really important. Yeah, I think that's it's a great point and we'll pivot back to that in a second. But I think, you know, the the what you mentioned about solving a problem that you had, right, is so important. And I'm just thinking about you said a thousand years ago, it's probably been at least a decade, is it? It's probably closing yeah. in on that. <laughs> years yeah that sales and marketing i know this is really more marketing related but they they struggled with this a decade ago and yet it's still a big problem for a lot of companies that haven't got it under control and sales and marketing alignment is still an issue that a lot of companies are facing so it's crazy that we're still having this discussion today but i guess that's why we're here right yeah i mean i think i think what's happening though and really the the problem that we're tapping into and this really goes back into you know when you're an entrepreneur and you're trying to solve a business problem and create a company around that is that you've got to tap into a growing market and a growing trend. And the growing trend that we saw and that we tapped into is digital content explosion. So 10 years ago when, you know, I was running a global sales and marketing team, you know, digital content was exploding. You know, you had, you know, different channels, search was happening, digital advertising was happening. You know, big brands had, you know, a couple different agencies, personalization was starting, but fast forward now, you know, the average marketing department has like over 200 projects going on at the same time. They've got 16 different agencies. I mean, it's mental. It's, it's, it's wow. great. And so if you're a regulated industry on top of that, keeping track of everything is really, really hard. So it was difficult before and with digitization and the requirements of personalization as well in so many channels and so many demands on marketing as well, it becomes even harder. And, and that's the problem that we're solving. So I think, you know, just kind of tying that back into, you know, needs analysis and, you know, when you're starting a company, make it's, it's a lot easier if you're starting a company in a growing industry and when the problem that you're solving is, is just exacerbating over time as well. So that's a, that's a great segue back into it. So how did you know, you're like, you what, this is a problem. I'm going to go start a company to solve this problem. How did you know what to do? Where did you start? <laughs> well, I just, I mean, I experienced it myself, but I, you know, there's a lot of research out there, you know, I mean, I think the other thing is that everybody has great ideas. So there's no shortage of ideas out there and everybody, you know, I remember when iPhones came out, everyone was like, Oh, I've got an I've got a great idea for an app. You know, everybody had these great ideas at, at one point. But there's no shortage of ideas. But what's really important when you're coming up with an idea for a company is that that there that the market that you're going into is growing. That you know, obviously, the financials makes makes sense, and you you can pull a team together to obviously go do it. And I think having the experience and being able to pull it off is also really important. One thing that I will share with you, I and mean, I was actually just talking about this with somebody the other night at a first post-COVID dinner party where we were allowed to actually have dinner with somebody outside your actual family here in Melbourne, Australia, was that we were talking about founding a tech company when you're not a technical person yourself. And the stress about that, where 
you know, if something breaks, you can't fix it yourself. And, you know, one of the things he said was, you know, how did you do that? And how did you, you know, if it was just you and, you know, you hired a dev to, or a dev or two to kind of build the product, how did you actually go about doing that? And, you know, you start selling off the plan a little bit and you, you know, you create the prototype and you start selling it to a couple of customers and you're, you know, selling it to friends and family and, you know, you sell it to people you kind of know and just start showing it around. But then once you get a couple of customers, you know, it becomes real. And then you just hope those employees stay with you. And then in our case, you know, an employee didn't stay with us and he left and he said, you know, I'm, I'm going to go travel the world, which is, you know, fair enough. He's got a life for you. So right. <laughs> that's great. But then I'm, you know, stuck with some technology that I can't fix if it breaks. So I think that becomes a major stress point. So when you are founding a business, when you're not a technical person, and you're founding a tech business, making sure that you have a partner or a founder that is tied in with you um, to do that. Now it's not an issue. You know, we have, you know, a very large staff of 50 people who are, you know, very technically competent, <laughs> that it's not, but, but at, you know, early stages, it, you know, it was something that was, you know, that definitely, you know, kept me up at definitely night. Definitely stressful for sure. Now in hindsight, do you think that ended up being a benefit? Because I could imagine if you're one of those doers, right? I could program and keep doing this, that maybe there would have been a, a different perspective on it than you having to articulate back to dev. I'm just curious in hindsight, if you think there was some advantages to it or nope, definitely go get the technical <laughs> resource well, up front. I think, you know, I think when we developed intelligence bank, we developed it from a, the user always first versus the technology. So it was always about what does the user want and how does it need to look and feel Okay. Before, and then the technology kind of made it happen and then scaled it up. So that's how it was always developed kind of from day one. And like I said, now you're a global company and growing rapidly. Uh, yeah. So, but, but from day, yeah, I guess when you're starting a company, it's a different, yeah, that's a different thing to consider. And, and you know, I want to go back to, cause one of the themes I'm hearing through kind of the 2.0 version of the, the, the podcast, you know, when I talk to the B2B founders and we talk about, you know, getting beyond the, you know, the million dollar mark or the 5% club and, you know, we talk a lot about first customers and it's usually somebody in your network. You know, I call it friends and family, but friends and family still have to have a need for what you're selling, right? Your service or product. Almost universally though, everybody's like, that's where we got stuck, right? It got real once I had to sell to somebody that I didn't know. <laughs> so I'd love from your perspective to, you know, as you were starting to grow, getting some good traction, definitely starting with friends and family, you know, what, you, what did you do next? How did you get beyond that? I guess none of our fa my family bought it because it was always enterprise. <laughs> I guess when we started, so but it was always people in our network. So people in our network were our first customers. So people we had, I guess, professional relationships before had were our first customers, and we were lucky that they were larger businesses and larger enterprise businesses. So the logo we had very good reference customers early on, which which was great. So. The logos, I think having big logos early on are important. So look, having a customer is important regardless and a paying customer. And I think, you know, one of the things that I was really proud of is that I think year one, we were profitable because awesome. we sold off the plan and, you know, we didn't, we had customers who wanted to co-develop with us who had the, and that's how we knew we had a good business because we had a need that these big enterprise clients were willing to co-fund with us and were willing to 
you know, roll up their sleeves and, and make it work with us, which was, which was really great. And I don't know if there's appetite for that necessarily now, like there was then, but maybe there is. But I think what was great is that we just went for it. We didn't feel like we were small and we didn't act small and we acted big and we, we were able to get those brands and those logos. And some of those brands are still our clients today. And we're still, we still have very healthy relationships. And it's funny. So sometimes when I'll go and talk to the CMOs at those companies today, I will still thank them. And I will still acknowledge, I was like, you are the reason why we are successful and why we're here because you backed us from day one. You know, we will forever be grateful for that. But, but I think it's the, the big logos get big logos and that experience does that. So I would, I would say that, yeah, the bigger you can get early on, the better. And it took, I guess, for our first million, I think it took like three years to do that. Okay. To kind of that it took, it took some time, you know, you know, going from air, like an idea to, you know, first million and we didn't have funding for you know at least until year two or you know two years on so we didn't have you know proper funding or anything so it's yeah it took some time to do that but yeah there's a lot of hustle and a lot of lots of meetings and a lot of you know a lot of coffees and but we got there and yeah kind of haven't looked back and we still have the first customer we ever sold so that's that's, awesome and just even tying into that one of the, the questions i like to ask is how did you know how to price it, right? You're solving a problem that nobody's really solved before. And so, you know, it's a big problem. You had the problem, but were you guessing when you went with first pricing or how did you, how'd you figure? Pricing is a funny thing. I think pricing is something you're always tweaking. And I think pricing, especially with enterprise software, it's something you're always playing with. And yeah, it's, it's our pricing, what it was, you know, eight years ago is so different from what it is now. It depends on the size of the company. It depends on so many different variables, but you know, I think you just put something out there and, you know, and obviously depends on your costs as well, but yeah, I, I don't think anybody ever gets it hundred percent right at wow. all times. So you just have to, you know, figure it out as you go. And then when you started with, with your product, was it a reoccurring revenue model or license? I'm trying to remember back in your early days, how you were, how you approached yeah. the market with it. It was really interesting when we launched the company, we set out to, to always be two things. Firstly, always SaaS. So always deliver through SaaS and to be global from day one. Interesting. So we okay. got our first international client within the first year. Which is interesting because you didn't necessarily have the resources and the, the, the talent and the folks around the world right. to, to support that. So it's a bold mm-hmm. idea. I mean, it's, it's really interesting and obviously it, it paid off. So I guess my, my follow-up question is that you obviously got some good traction. You raised some money. Uh, had you started selling, well, I guess go back. When did you start selling beyond your, your professional network and starting to reach you know, folks that maybe you didn't know or what was kind of the strategy to get beyond that, that, that first wave, if you will? Your, look, your network runs out pretty quickly. So I think after year one, that, that ends. And, you know, you start investing in marketing after year one. And, and you look, year one is, I think, you're building your product and you're, you're using your network to get feedback on your product. And that's the most important thing. You know, you can have honest conversations like, would you even use this? Would you even buy this? And, and those are the sorts of questions. And it's, it's really funny. One of my best friends now, we actually weren't even very close at the time. I just had known this woman from kind of a business networking thing. And I had talked to her. She didn't, she never bought intelligence bank, but we met through that and we just okay. became very friends. 
And I said, would you even buy this? And how would you, you know, and we met through that kind of through that process. And I was, and I just asked, I was just very frank and, you know, and I didn't want people to tell me what I wanted to hear. I wanted to hear the truth about it because um, hearing what I wanted to hear would have been, you know, not helpful, I guess. Right. Um, hearing the truth would have been, you know, is, was what I needed. So I guess after year one, we started actively marketing. So we did, you know, coming from a marketing background, you know, I do believe in the power of advertising and marketing. So we did spend money in search and online marketing and then started to get leads in the door and then, you know, just kind of took off from there. But, you know, you're, I guess the, the point is, is that the friends and family, when you are starting out, that whole strategy does that has a very short runway and you have to start and you do not have a real business until you start selling to people you don't know. Yeah. It was funny. I had a guest on the other day and now I'm drawing a blank who had said it, but he said, yeah, the dollars don't count till you sell it to somebody you don't know. <laughs> right? It's all good and, and well. And I think there's some really good advice in there for these, you know, first time founders or founders looking to scale their business for the first time, leverage that network, not just to get some revenue coming in, but validate I had a guy who actually went through the Shark Tank process, right? And he had invented a product and he was brutally, he wanted his, his network to be brutally honest with them about what's, what they like, what they don't like and be, tell me, because if you won't tell me, nobody's going to tell me and I'm not going to get to where I, I need to go. So I think that's really an overlooked aspect of, a, yeah. especially when you're so busy, right? You're trying to do everything to, to try to get out, but take the time to listen to your customer. Yeah. And sometimes things are, and I think with some ideas, it, it's not that the idea is bad, but it's just sometimes it's not commercial. Right. You know, sometimes, with, sometimes with, I'm very generous with my time with new entrepreneurs because people were, did that for me when I was first starting out. So if, if people have a question or want to run an idea and not that I am the expert in all things business, but you know, I've kind of hey, been there <laughs> and yeah, I've done, oh, I've done, you know, I've, I've done some things right. And, you know, I'm happy to share thoughts with people sometimes. And, you know, sometimes I, I think, I think the issue is like to, to run a successful business, you have to have a lot of things go well. So part of it is timing. So you've got to have the right business at the right time. Part of it is the model. So how are you delivering it? So I guess it's the four P's of marketing as well, but you've got to have the right you know, way of delivering it as well. You've got to have the right price point. So there's got to be a lot of things. So you might have like the best idea in the world, but if you can't get it to market or you can't sell right. it, or there's a lot of things you got to get right. And so I think that's where a lot of businesses struggle and figuring out that fit is, you know, kind of tricky at the start. And that's what you got to really work on and nail early on to break that million dollar mark. Yeah, that's so good. And, you know, it's one of my less articulate way of saying it is, you know, is your product a need to have product or a nice to have product? And I think you yeah. can get some nice traction, no pun intended, when the markets are good and business is going well and people are like, oh, yeah, that's interesting. I'll buy this. But in the times we're in now, they're going to go to the products that they need to have versus the, the nice to have. And you know, at least my experience has been there's less time spent on kind of validating that with either customers or market to make sure that you're, again, you can build a really nice business and we're not saying the end all be all is to scale it beyond a million dollars, but a lot of people do want to build a business. And if you do, you know, these are some of the fundamental things you should be thinking about before you get too hmm. far down the road. Right. And, and, and I think the other thing that happens is that 
you know, you read in the media all the time, oh, so-and-so is 22 years old and they built a $20 million business in two weeks. And everyone has this time pressure, but it takes time to build great businesses. Like, you know, Jeff Bezos did not build Amazon in two minutes, you know, like, I mean, it's extraordinary what he's built over sure. you know, 20 years or whatever it's been, but it takes time to build businesses. It takes time to figure things out. It takes time to build a great team. It takes time to build technology. And that's just the reality of things. And so I think people and entrepreneurs especially get, can be get, get really hard on themselves as well. Um, on, you know, oh, I haven't cracked this milestone in, you know, three weeks and right. guys gonna fall in. So, you know, I think people need to give themselves a little bit of a break as well. Yeah. And, and what's your advice to, to folks? Because there's a, a fine line between perseverance and maybe it's not the right idea. And I know there's no one answer to it, but, you know, how, how would you recommend to people to kind of straddle that, that line? Yeah. I'm, I mean, I'm very milestone driven. I, I think of everything in terms of quarters and think about, you know, I need to achieve or I need to get to certain places within a quarter. So you think about your business in terms of, you know, people, product, financials, you know, sales, you know, whatever it is. And then you need to basically do these three things on each one. And that's it. Like there's all this other noise and there's all these other things that you have to do. And if you can focus on that and just get to the next milestone, because like there's so many things you have to do running a business and you can get completely overwhelmed. But if you just focus on those things quarter by quarter, and then when you do get stressed out, you just look at your little spreadsheet. You say, oh, no, I'm doing that next quarter. I don't have to, you know, solve the problems of the world right this second. Right. It calms you down. But then also you can see, you know, if it doesn't, if it doesn't. And then I guess if you're struggling with the business, you can also see that pretty clearly. Yeah, no, I really like that. And again, I'm more of a metrics and numbers driven anyway. So having kind of that, that dashboard and, and don't, the numbers don't lie. So if you don't fool yourself with, oh, if only three more customers would have bought, we would have got to, you know, X, Y, and Z. And I get it. I mean, there's the number of folks that I've had that, you know, I'm a three-year overnight success or a 10-year overnight success. And I do think it's got to be in your DNA to persevere, but it's really making sure you get, get to the right idea and, you know, kind of the combination I've seen is the folks that just kind of miss on one of the four areas that you talked about, or just don't make the investment into the next level of the marketing or bringing in the wrong people and not investing in the right areas. And, and again, it's super small sample size, but the majority of folks, I said, well, we're at this point, we need to, to start to scale. I'm going to hire, you know, four salespeople or bring in four marketers. And maybe that's the right idea but you know again it's a math equation right i mean marketing is still a math equation you're going to see where the demand's going to come so you know as you 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 cross through that threshold what's kind of your advice or recommendations of all right i can't do any more myself right i'm at the max point and if i want to grow this business i'm going to have to make investments so where maybe one what did you do and two what's maybe your recommendation to folks as they're they're getting to that point yeah so i mean i think to be a good ceo for a startup you have to be a multitasker and you have to be good at a lot of things so you've got to be able to to be able to do a lot early on 
or and or recognize the skills that you don't have and bring people in early on. I mean, that is very, very clear. I probably, in hindsight, tried to do too much myself and didn't hire expert other experts early, early on um, sooner, which I'm doing rapidly now. And it's paying dividends, which is, which is great. And we have a very deep management bench now. And like, you know, it's really funny when you're sitting on Zoom calls now with COVID and everything else. I just sit there and look at my management team on the Zoom because you can see them all there, you know, all 12 of them. And I'm just kind of in awe of them. I'm just like, you know, it's just the dream team. And it's amazing to, to see them all doing their thing. And I mean, I can't even imagine our business without them. And, and I just think, gosh, if I had those people two years before or three years before, imagine where we would have been. But, you know, that's hindsight and that's 2020 and things like that. But I think it's, I think, you know, hiring the good managers early is really important. Where you make mistakes is when you hire people who are not impact players in, in a oh, startup. And that is what I think is the problem, whether they're a sales, per, where they're, they're just a, I guess a team member or a manager in a startup, you need people who are going to make a difference. So people who are just warming seats are a problem. I find, I think people who are going to drive the business forward, who are going to bring ideas, who are going to push things forward are the people that you need. Yeah, no, I, I love that idea. And I think I've heard it as, you know, we have unicorn products and companies, but I think those employees, that's kind of a theme I hear quite a bit. I've got somebody that can do a lot of stuff early on is what you need, but then folks also struggle with, all right, now I'm starting to bring in, you know, a full management team. I had this person that was really good. Is he or she now able to step into one of those management positions or how do I manage? I mean, it's a good problem to have, right? But it's yeah, not yeah. an uncommon tale. Yeah, that's right. That's right. It's interesting. I think so, when you get, you know, I guess coming back to your five percenters and like a million dollars, I mean, a million dollars is still, you know, it's obviously your company will survive usually if you kind of get to a million dollars and you've gotten to a threshold, but it's still not a ton of money. It's not like you can afford to go out and hire a full management team. You know, it's not like huge, but it's at that point where you probably need a finance person or you probably right. need sales. You probably need that one additional senior um, management person. And depending on what your skills are, you probably need to hire the management skills that are completely opposite to yours. <laughs> That's what I would Makes sense. Yeah. Compliments it. And, you know, one of the things I've been hearing more and more is people coming more accepting of a fractional type of a C level as, as startups are starting to grow, right? The old thinking was I need somebody here full time, you know, hundred percent committed. And I get that, but it sounds like there may be an opportunity when you get to a certain threshold, to bring in that that expert in this area to help you drive that business, even if it is on a, a part time, I'd love to get your perspective on that and where it's, where do you think it's heading? I don't really know. I mean, everybody who works at Intelligence Bank is pretty committed, and we kind of all live and breathe it and love it and love working with each other. And I mean, I actually can't imagine having somebody part time on our oh, interesting. Okay, because it's so engulfing and you know we're on the phone with each other on weekends and talk you know just because we love it and we're talking about it and it's not because i i mean i just there's so much to do also and there's so many challenges you know fun and not so fun and you know whatever we need to get done that i i yeah i can't visualize us 
having somebody part-time. I think there might be some, there might be some part-time roles, but not from a management perspective, not for, and, and you know, we're growing, you know, last, last year we grew 60%. So awesome. we can't, you know, we're, we're on a rocket ship. We don't have the capacity and we're, you know, well past that stage at that earlier growth stage anyway, but even at early growth, I mean, we we're growing like 150%, you know, we were much smaller. So we didn't have the ability to have part-time anything. Like okay. we, were, we were kind of, we, we, we weren't able to do that at the time. It's yeah, interesting. And again, I'm just asking from, it's a newer trend that I've been hearing and I haven't heard any yeah. success stories yet. And it seems <laughs> like it's a little counter to, I mean, I get it from an enterprise where you could bring somebody in to help maybe realign, yeah. but maybe a well, newer version. There might be some roles. Like I think maybe like a CFO role, like if you're not okay. ready to have a full-time CFO, like, and you need that expertise if you're capital raising or something like that, you might be able to maybe. do some roles like that that might be workable or even like security or things like that. Yeah, that makes sense. And even then it may not even be a CFO type of role, right? It may be very specific to a project or, or tasks. So then you led me right into the next question. So thank you. <laughs> it is culture, right? And I know we're starting to run low on time, so I want to be respectful of that. But Obviously, you just said the 50 plus people that work for you all love to be there. You know, how do you build that in early on? Is it just from a management style? Was it hiring? How, you know, is there a secret sauce to it? And, you know, I just would love your perspective to, again, founders that are looking to scale, you know, bringing complimentary people. But as I start to bring on full-time employees, you know, is there some best practices you'd recommend? Yeah. Well, firstly, I'd say, I hope they love to be there. I mean, that is my <laughs> wish. I don't know if they all love it, but I, I do. That is like my number one wish that I hope they do. Culture is a funny thing. I, I think culture needs to come from the bottom, not from the top. I think, I think culture has to be set. The tone has to be set from the top in the sense that it has to be value driven. And I think, you know, management and me as the CEO and the founder has to set the values of the company and the values have to, and we have to live by our values and have to be transparent about our values and we have to live our values. So they can't just be a poster on the wall and say, our values are be nice to each other. You know, it's gotta be, and, and we have to reward our values and we've got to acknowledge them and bring them and figure out ways to bring them to life. We are not one of those companies. We're not like the kombucha on tap beanbag in the corner type startup at all. Like that's not us. We're kind of like, a big family that's kind of dorky. Like, okay, that's I like it. Our, that's kind of probably more our company culture. It's very like family that likes to eat a lot and it's, you know, slightly quirky and dorky is probably the way you would describe our company culture. But it has to do about shared values at the end of the day. And so if somebody doesn't have, and so it's very diverse, like ethnically, age group, everything, it's like, it's crazy, like the diversity there. But if somebody doesn't have a shared value and is um, mean or is, you know, highly political or whatever, is they don't last very long at Intelligence Bank. And so we weed those people out pretty quickly because we know that that is a culture killer and there's not a lot of time for that behavior at Intelligence Bank. And then the other thing that we're pretty passionate about is that I guess the fun activities that we do at Intelligence Bank, they never come from me. Well, oh, first thing, okay. I'm boring is the first thing. No. <laughs> nobody, nobody probably wants to do what I want to do anyway, but they always come from just random people and they're never organized. Like 
oh, today we're going to have beer pong or, you know, it's not, it's never like that. It's always from somebody will just organically say, we're going to do this. And it's usually this like kooky, like kind of left of center idea that's just random, that is hilarious and everybody just gets on board with it and loves it. And it's awesome and fun. And, you know, like our Christmas party was like Italian summer, 1970s. It's like Italian mansion and played like Bashi and dressed up like 1970s summer, like stuff like that. It's just just random. And, but what I love about it is that it's not like a social committee or it's not this one person. It's just, it's just organic and it comes yeah. and my only job is to fund it and I'm happy to do it. Because and show love, up, right? And participate. <laughs> well, I'm happy to because it's super fun, but I love yeah. that it comes from different people and I love how different groups of people just come up with things and it just happens. And that's what's great about it. Yeah. Let me just ask you one follow up on that before I get to my last two questions. But yep. on the, you know, we talk about the values and sticking to and developing was that an early on did you when i started the company and we started to grow here's the things that are important to me and what i want important to the company or was it as you started to bring more employees on did you you know i'm asking because at some point do as a founder do i need to be here's my values today as i'm starting this company or is it something that kind of morphs and grows and you better figure it out before you hire too many people I think it was that. I think we figured it out before we hired too many people. So okay. I think at about six or seven people, we put them together. There was a very small group of us and we, we put them together and they just kind of, and for, for a while they were the poster on the wall that we did nothing with. And right. you know, as we grew and as we had more people and we had people in different offices, it was just more, more and more important that we brought them to life and we made them, you know, important to our staff because at the end of the day, that's all that matters is our people. You know, you can build the best technology in the world, but if you're, if you don't have the people to build it, to sell it, to service our customers, it, you know, it's, it's kind yeah. of relevant. No, you know? I get it. I think I wish more companies would I mean, learn at least some of the older enterprise and legacy companies could, they're trying to take lessons from from folks like you and, and growth companies, but it's really hard to, to change a, a culture of an organization. So no, that, that, that's awesome. And so one last question on the business, and then I'll get to my final question is, you know, what's next for, for you and intelligence bank? What are you guys, I know we're, we're still yeah, in the middle so of COVID, but what's, you know, what's on your yeah. guys's radar? So we are, we're most likely going to be doing another capital raise. So we haven't raised in a while. Like we're, profitable, but it's really for us going to the next stage as a business. So that's probably on the cards for us probably next financial year. We'll be looking, yeah, I think once this COVID thing hopefully settles itself out, if it ever does, that'll be for us. And just continue to build, you know, just, I think for us, it's to be, you know, we're a very product driven company. I think sales has been a very big focus for us to prove, you know, to continue that growth trajectory, we're going to continue on that product path and continue to, you know, grow out, you know, our enterprise product capability to continue to win bigger sales and things like that. So I think it's the, that, that product, just continue to really invest in our product roadmap is, you know, on the cards for us. Awesome. And try to get back to some sort of normal, right? <laughs> yeah, it sounds like Australia is a much further along than we are yeah, here in the U.S. Yeah. So, yeah. You, and I'm glad you clarified that the dinner party was in Australia and 
you know, and depending on what state you're in the U.S., that would cause an uproar. So, <laughs> exactly. All right. So, in closing, and you know this this drill, it's it's still my favorite question is you know, what is one thing that you would highly recommend, and it could be you know personal, professional, just what's something that's you know top of mind for you that you think other people should be you know thinking about. I think when you're when you're running your own business it's completely self-absorbing and totally time-consuming. It's all you think about. So just taking time out to read a book and to do something different because you can just think about your own business all day long because you love it, passion project. And it's really, really important to do something else once in a while um, and just to take a break. Are you reading anything exciting you'd want to recommend? <laughs> <laughs> No, I'm just working on the business now. Um, <laughs> I am reading The Pilgrim right now and I'm absolutely loving it. So it's been around for a while, but yeah. Awesome. Right um, well, Tessa, if I really appreciate your time in part two. Again, all sorts of value and I appreciate you, you know, taking some time early out of your morning. And if, if folks want to reach out and learn a little bit more about you or connect with you, what's, uh, what's the best way for people to do that? Oh, just on LinkedIn is probably the best way. Awesome. And I will share that in the show notes and, you know, maybe we'll check back in with you in another 12 months after another raise and, you know, we'll check your progress to that next level. Yeah. Sounds good. Thanks awesome, so much. Tessa, thank you so much for your time. Okay. Thanks. Have a good day. Mm -hmm.